Okay, sounds good. Excellent. Thank you for confirming that. So we are live, and this is Critical Q&A number 239. Wow. I'm trying to get uh, jump-started into these sooner and faster as I get more live streams done. I've really, I don't know how many live streams I've done over the years, but it doesn't sound, doesn't feel like I've done a lot of them. I'd like to do a lot more. Um, but I, there's always this little, you know, this little bit at the beginning where you have to make sure everything is running according to plan. So let me uh, go tweet out uh, my uh, things here. Good, we are live, and now that's out there on uh, Twitter and on uh, Facebook, so people can know and see about that. Pennsylvania in the house, Denver, Prague, Tennessee, Greece, oh my goodness, Netherlands, uh, okay, I can only hear one side. I'm not sure, I am. I don't have the ability to, that I know of yet, at least, to broadcast in mono or stereo. I guess it's broadcasting in mono if you're only hearing it on one speaker. I don't know what to do about that uh, from my end, but I will look into it in the future. Um, so this is, okay, and the law of improbability says I'm hearing both sides, so maybe it's a setting on your end, guys. Uh, Houston, okay. All right, so we are uh, good. Got some folks on board. This is a critical Q&A live stream, so I am here to answer questions, tell you guys what's what. I've got a couple questions uh, queued up, but go ahead and start putting them into the uh, into the comments here. If you have questions you would like me to answer, I am not going to guarantee that I'm going to get to all of them. In fact, I'm sure I might miss some. I am self-moderating, um, administering this live stream. Melissa's at work today. So uh, so it's just little old lone me looking at this, so I'm going to try to answer your questions while I pull them out of the comment stream here. And if I miss one for you, just go ahead and put it in the stream again. I might not uh, go back up the line and catch it. Hey, thanks, Teresa, for that super chat. Really appreciate that donation. Thank you. Wow. Hello from Madras, India. Wow. Don't know if I said that right. Um, okay, only out of one channel here, too. Cool. Hey, Florida. Okay, Fred Flogiston's asking, have you heard from street epistemology? Uh, f have I heard from street epistemology, Fred? I've certainly heard of it. I've done podcasts about it. Um, and uh, yes, thanks again, Teresa. Um, and uh, of course, I'm a big advocate of street uh, epistemology. This was something that um, Peter Boghossian first formulated in um, a Book I do not ah here it is in this book Peter Bogosian uh, who he he did not like this title of this book by the way this is not supposed to be just a manual for creating atheists it's supposed to be a sort of appeal to reason and and intellect and and uh, and and rational beliefs and um. Oh, yes. Okay. Fred says of. Okay, good. So, yes. So, um, so street epistemology is a method of questioning or talking to somebody in a civil, rational manner and asking them about their beliefs. Epistemology, as a word, has to do with study of uh, knowledge or learning about knowledge or learning about things and, and where knowledge comes from, beliefs, you know, things like that. So, um, uh, okay. Anyway, so... That's what street epistemology is. I have heard of it. I've had Peter Boghossian on my Sensibly Speaking podcast. I've had Anthony Magnabosco on my Sensibly Speaking podcast, I think once or tw I think twice. 
And he is somebody who has a whole YouTube channel dedicated to street epistemology. So I really can't recommend it enough. All right. So let's see here. Go back up the comments. What do you think of the... Uh, oh, boy. Okay, we'll tackle that one in just a second, E-Honda. Let's see here. Um... Uh, Zeb Stock. Seems like you could add something to sell non-book merch below the buy this book section. Yes. Actually, this is the, the, the current screen you're seeing right now is a work in progress. I, I threw the book thing up there just to have something to put there. But what's actually going to end up going in that section of the screen on the live streaming will be your comments. Uh, there's a way to put a box there to have the comments in there so that in the future, uh, anybody who's watching this video will be able to see what you guys have been saying and asking during the course of the live stream. I just haven't technically uh, done the little coding to put that in there yet. So I'm still messing around with this screen. So I'm still open to suggestions on anything you guys want to uh, see there or think I might put there. Uh, okay, so now just going from the top, we're just going to start taking some questions here and seeing what's uh, seeing what you guys have. Um, e Honda seven two zero asks, "What do you think of the state of the Second Amendment here in the USA with what is happening in Hong Kong?" Um, that's an interesting connection. I hadn't connected those two things, so I'm not sure what what you're thinking on that is. I've spoken about the Second Amendment. Um, in fact, just in a recent um, critical Q and A and in podcasts I've done recently on other people's channels, I've talked about my ideas on the Second Amendment and licensing and things like that to try to get uh, some regu some sensible regulation in line on the Second Amendment. There is sensible regulation already. I'm not saying everything we're doing is insensible or irrational. Um, but it clearly isn't regulating uh, firearms to the degree that we can prevent mass shootings here in the United States. And that's something we should be uh, figuring out better somehow. You know, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and pretend to have all the perfect answers. I've got an idea, but I don't know that it's the you know, be-all, end-all of existence of ideas on gun control. Um, the Hong Kong protests are a whole different matter, and... Um, I so I'm not sure again I'm not really really familiar super super familiar with what's going on in Hong Kong other than there are protests against the Chinese government uh and uh you know I I look at China as a fairly totalitarian state um and a uh, very restricted society in many ways, and I know that that's a long, nuanced, difficult conversation. So, you know, I don't look at China the same way I look at North Korea. I don't think it's as quite as simple as uh, as that situation. So, anyway, it's a great, big, huge morass, and I'm I'm just sort of skimming over the top of it here. Uh, all right, let's go back up here and see. Um, sorry, I'm not keeping up with the comments. I'm just getting back to them here. So. Uh, have you heard about the astounding chapter-by-chapter -chapter critical review of Mission Earth? It's called Mission Spork. I have not, Cast Iron Chaos. Thanks for mentioning that to me. I'm going to note that because I want to go check that out. Um, oh, this is interesting. Salmon JM says, what are your thoughts on the new atheists, especially Dawkins? I find them a little too aggressive myself, albeit not as much as Silberman. Okay. Um funny that they're called new atheists because they're the only atheists I've ever known for the many, many years that I've been out here. Um, the past few many years that I've been out, uh, these were the atheists, these, these four horsemen, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and Daniel Dennett. And those were the ones that I became familiar with as 
uh, thought leaders or opinion leaders in the atheist community. I wouldn't say that they have more celebrity status than I'll say leaders of the atheist community because the atheist world doesn't really have leaders that way, um, which is one of the reasons why it's not a cult, by the way. Um, anyway, I think Richard Dawkins is an interesting guy. I basically agree with him on some things and disagree with him on others. I think he, um, has put his foot in his mouth a couple times on Twitter, which hasn't helped things, but that's just, you know, Dawkins. So, so whatever, what are you going to, what are you going to do about that? Um, I do not think Richard Dawkins is an overly aggressive atheist, but I do think he's a strong proponent of, um, rationality and pushing back against what he sees as silly or ridiculous beliefs, and he has civil, rational conversations about it. Silverman, Silverman, you're talking about Dave Silverman, who used to be the president of the American Atheist Association, and um, now he's not, and uh, he was involved in uh, some scandals, uh, some Me Too stuff, and um, Silverman I had on my podcast but I, I didn't really agree with his firebrand approach. He very proudly uh, puts himself out there as this firebrand atheist. Now he's uh, sort of ruined his reputation and, and is just aggressively uh, trying to get back in the public light and doesn't seem to be doing a good job of it. So that's what I can say about Dave Silverman, at least for now. Um, hey, Kyle, good to see you too. Uh Fred asks, would you like to interview Anthony Magnabosco? I have interviewed Anthony Magnabosco a couple of times. He and I are friends. Uh, and I'll probably have him on my show again in the future. Uh, that's back on the street epistemology question. So, Fred, if you haven't seen those, I guess, uh, look them up on my channel because they're, they're good interviews. Um, Lisa Vanderhoven asks, do you anticipate public interest in Scientology dropping now that the Aftermath show has wrapped? Yes, I do. Absolutely. Of course I do. And this is something that we'll have to keep putting out in the forefront, keep pushing, keep putting out there. And, you know, uh, not just Scientology, but the, the whole pushback against destructive cults and extremist thinking, that's really where my, where I live. And, uh, Scientology is you know, a primary example of that and the one I'm most familiar with. So it's the one I talk about the most. But, um, but yeah, I think there is going to be a, a, a drop in interest. I think there already has been. Kyle asks, do you, do you ask questions to criticize your atheism? Yes, I do. Um, thanks for asking me about this, Kyle. Let me, let me talk about this for a second. Um, I don't have a clear-cut belief that there is no God. So I'm always evaluating and reevaluating and asking myself questions about my atheism and my or my agnosticism. I simply sit in the land of I don't know, and I have lots of ideas and, and you know, potential constructs and concepts of what God or a creator figure might look like, but I don't think... And I guess this is most closely aligned with deism, is what I've come to learn. Um, I don't think God or a creator figure has any interest in us here on earth in any way. And I don't see any evidence to prove otherwise. And I see a bunch of people, uh, some very arrogant, some very conceited, um, who believe that God takes a very deep personal interest in their life. Uh, some people just have that belief for comfort. Some people have that belief because that's what they were raised with and they haven't had any need or desire to question it. It gives them comfort. It gives them community. It gives them a sense of, of answers where there might, 
you know, be the uncomfort or discomfort of not having any answers of, about supernatural existence, what's going to happen in the afterlife, where we came from, you know, all the usual stuff as to why people believe or, or not. Um, so, so to, you know, so do I ask questions to criticize my atheism? Yeah, I do. I ask about whether we can really be so sure. I have also let me let me share this with you guys. And here's sort of my my the, the, the my bedrock thinking uh, in terms of questions about atheism or or an atheist position. For many, for decades, centuries, for centuries and centuries, millennia of our existence, mankind did not have a microscope, right? Up until what, the 1600s, 1500s, something like that. Lewin Hoke invented this thing, and suddenly we could see cellular bodies, we could see microorganisms, we could see things we couldn't see before. And what was only conjectured at could now be proven or disproven or debunked to show that, you know, microorganisms were a thing, germs were a thing, that these things caused. Uh, good and bad effects on us and other uh, creatures that there were, you know, symbiotic relationships, etc. The microscope is what allowed us to see these things and, and learn about these things. Before that, there was no ability to prove or disprove the germ theory of disease or microorganisms existed, and yet they always did. They always existed. But we couldn't see them, so we couldn't prove they existed, so we had no way of knowing one way or the other, and there was conjecture about it one way and the other. Once the microscope was invented, everything became clear and we took giant leaps and steps forward in our scientific understanding of ourselves and life. But the point is that prior to that microscope, if somebody had been saying microorganisms exist, there is a germ theory of disease, and this is how we get sick, everybody would have called that guy a complete nut. Or girl, right? That woman, uh, man or woman, whoever had asserted that sort of thing about microorganisms would have been considered a, a nutcase, total crazy person, because there was no way to substantiate the claim. Just because there's no, so the point here where I'm going with this in terms of religious faith is just because there isn't any current way of validating or substantiating a, a creator claim or a God claim is not a reason why it's automatically wrong and shouldn't be believed. But, that all being said, you can only have faith in it. You can't have a substantiated evidence-based understanding or knowledge of it. You can only have a faith-based idea that it exists until we get a microscope, right? Until we get something that can, you know, sense, measure, or experience the, the supernatural, it will be stuck as a belief and a faith, and, uh, and that's where it's at. So I'm always happy to call these things into question. I'm, you know, as an atheist, I don't assert that there is no God or no creator, and, and most atheists don't. They just don't have a belief in it, but they don't have a certainty that there isn't. And um, anyway, so that's uh, some thoughts on that question. Kyle, I hope that was interesting or, or informative. Uh, let's see here. Already missed that. Uh, oh, Fred. Yeah. Okay. Good. Check those out. Okay. Let's get caught up here. Uh, no, it's just Pexoish when hours within his life. Why didn't he want his family? He thought about family. Oh, Teresa Atkins, uh, Aikens. Sorry, Teresa Aikens asks, I know this is just speculation, but when LRH was at the end of his life, why didn't he want his family by his side? Is it the way he thought about family 
that we are all just Thetans. Yeah, family was never a big thing for Ron Hubbard, ever, his entire life. I mean, he blew off his first two kids and his first wife to go, you know, mess around with Sarah in California after the war and married her. I mean, he was married to two people at the same time. It took a year for them both to figure it out. I mean, Hubbard was shameless. He was awful. And he was he was not a family man. He was not really big on family. He just, that was pretty clear in his whole life, in the in the actions and attitudes he had in his life. So, um, so when he was on his way out, um, he'd already blown off his third wife, Mary Sue. He'd already thrown her under the bus. His daughter was off at the Int base, and she was just another Sea Org member, as far as I can, as far as I can tell from his point of view. And uh, the rest of his family was out of Scientology and you know and gone. So, yeah, he was just kind of a dick toward his family. Um, okay, JMOP, suppose OT9 and 10 actually exist and are actually released. Who do Scientologists expect to administer them? Can't you only audit up to your level? Nobody is trained to audit OT9 and 10. Excuse me. Yeah, there's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing that goes on with this. And they figured out how that kind of stuff works in Scientology, where they'll take one guy and sort of push him forward, and then they'll, you know, little bits and pieces at a time. And apparently you can, for example, at OT level 5, OT5 is an audited action. You have an auditor who delivers it to you. And um, and in order to be an OT5 auditor, you don't first have to have finished OT5. You only have to have started it. So you can get the first bits done and then uh, start auditing other people on it while you get audited through the rest of the actions because it's a, it's a whole series of, of a number of different rundowns. OT9 and 10 could be put together the same way. Somebody has to make that initial push, and they have claimed within the church that they already have those people trained up and ready to go, by the way. So this is this this chicken and egg problem is already claimed to have been solved within Scientology. Um, okay, let's see here. Checking in from the UK. Teresa asks, how much is your book? It is $20 on Amazon. Um, Tracy, well, beloved. Chris, do you ever catch yourself thinking about answers in a Scientology frame of mind and have to check yourself? Yes, but less over the years. I have not had to um, think so much in Scientologies as I used to. And it was very recently that I realized that I really, in my day-to-day life, don't really think in Scientology language anymore. And it's taken, it took six years to get there, but six or seven years, I guess, at this point. Uh, okay. Oh, Cast Iron Chaos. I thought the uh, higher OT levels were only administered on the free ones. OT 8 and eventually 9 and 10 and the rest of them will be on the free ones only. OTs 1 through 7 you can get uh, at Clearwater and Clearwater at Flag. OTs 1 through 5 you can get at any advanced organization around the world. Uh, okay, let's see what we got here. Robert Roberts, what appears to be intelligent, highly functional millionaires give millions to Scientology and the IAS. Do you think the money is partially banked offshore for them and they pay for Scientology lawyers? I think that there is a a great degree, great probability or possibility, potential of, um, High-level Scientologists giving their money to the church and having it laundered or done something with 
in order for them to get a return on investment. And that might be one reason why they give so much money over to the Church of Scientology, is there could easily be secret agreements or understandings or interest payments or something to high-level Scientologists who are giving over their money to the church. There's a number of ways that there could be kinds of schemes and plans and craziness going on there um, of an illegal or maybe just immoral nature. Who knows? Um, hard to say for sure because nobody's ever whistleblown on it. But um, do I think that could be the case? Yes, I absolutely do. People who, generally generally speaking, people who have millions of dollars are not idiots, um, especially if they're holding on to that money. And um, they invest it wisely or they invest it in things that will get, get back to them. I, again, I'm speaking in very broad general terms. There's always idiots who have money who, you know, can't think of enough stupid things to spend it on. Um, so, yeah, I think there could be schemes there. Um, okay, let's see here. Ash Bash. Hey, I've been seeing a lot of your comments on my um, videos lately. Looks like you've been binge-watching a lot of my stuff. That's cool. You say, I've never seen a religion more exploitive in every way than the church Scientology. I hope the momentum the Aftermath show generated keeps going and doesn't wane. Yes, me too. But public interest is a fickle thing. Uh, Tower Vault. Oh, yeah. Okay, Tower Vault asks... If the clear cognition becomes prematurely known to a preclear, is the preclear now out of luck for ever being certified clear? Also, do all auditors have to be clears um, to ID the cognition? Okay, the clear cognition is the statement that you're supposed to make when you get up around to the state of clear to prove that you are clear. And that statement is that you realize that you are the one who has been mocking up or creating your own reactive mind. And um, this is, um, this, wow, somebody just popped in a $50 super chat. Thank you. I'm going to get down to that. Thank you very much for that. Um, in the regular course of your auditing, you go up the, the, the you do the, the, the different levels of Scientology auditing, grade zero, grade one, grade two, grade three, and somewhere along the line, you might say this. And you're supposed to at some point, right, um, in order to be validated as having achieved the state of clear. Since Miscavige, a decade ago or, you know, 15 years ago, started re making people re-go through the steps to get to clear because they said you hadn't really achieved the state of clear, turns out you're not clear after all and you got to go back and do more auditing. Well, some of those people who were told that were perfectly aware of what the clear cognition was because they were themselves trained as clear auditors or Sea Org members and they had to go back and do their auditing knowing what the clear cog was. And they were supposed to just kind of tell themselves in their auditing, let it happen organically or naturally. You're not supposed to just know. <laughs> I know, it sounds a little silly. The whole thing is silly. The entire construct of clear is silly. But within the world of Scientology, that was how it was dealt with. So, yes, um, you could theoretically re-achieve the state of clear, even if you do already know the clear cognition. Looter92 asks, what is the male-female ratio in the Sea Org? I don't know, but I would say roughly 50-50 based on my experience. Um, Looter92, do you have to pay for self-auditing? Um, no. Self-auditing as a term in Scientology is what you do 
when you're just sort of sitting there ruminating and wondering and chewing on your case, as they say. Um, you're just kind of sitting there trying to audit yourself. That's called self-auditing. That's no good. That's, that's, that's discounted. That's discouraged in Scientology. You're not supposed to do that. Solo auditing is when you are trained as a solo auditor with an e-meter and you do solo auditing on advanced Scientology levels in order to achieve the higher states of existence. And that's a very, there's a, there's a two-part course that you do and it's a very formalized procedure. It's, it's directed. It's not just something, you don't just sit and ruminate. You actually have commands and questions and things you're supposed to do and you keep worksheets and you write everything down and this, those go back and forth from a case supervisor who directs you on what to do. So solo auditing is a very uh, complex procedure and you definitely pay for it a lot. Of, you pay a lot for it. Uh, the title guardian asks, hey, Chris, how has life been treating you? Well, uh, you know, the ups and downs of life as, as, it, as it is. Um, I will say that I had a sort of a re rehabilitation recently or a sort of a, a re-go, a re-realization about the dangers of social media. Remember last February, I went off social media. Melissa and I both did for a month. And it was so, it was such a good idea. It was such a good thing to do. It was very de-stressing. Because, um, you know, social media can be traumatizing all by itself. It can... It can, you know, kick in on on past traumas and stuff. And uh, uh, dare I say, it's re-stimulating. <laughs> uh, I'm just being, you know, I'm just being a little facetious here. But social media is not something that you want to be spending a lot of time on. And I had slowly kind of gotten back into it a little bit, right? And I had to re remind myself of the lessons from social media. So I did. Um, I have had some nice times recently. Uh, cutting back on some social media activity, and that has been helpful. Uh, have you heard of Freely the Banana Girl, Ferdinand Rice asks. No, I have not. Um, okay, take control and leave the rest. Okay. Hey, hey, Lisa. Big fan. Awesome. Ash Bash asks, why won't the government at least open an investigation into Scientology's tax-exempt status, given all the horror people that have come forward about all the abuses from the church? Ash, I've answered this so many times. Jay uh, Swift, uh, or rather uh, Jeffrey Augustine and I, have done a whole podcast answering this question. Okay, it's a detail. There's a lot to know about it. But the, the bottom line is the people who should be working in the IRS to do this kind of policing and, and, and regulatory enforcement literally are not even there on the job. That's how bad it is. And um, and so there's really no effort in the direction of trying to take away Scientology's tax-exempt status right now. And there is no political will. And the law enforcement officials in the most, the ones who should be the most interested and the ones who have the most or should be doing the most investigation about this, which is the LAPD and the Clearwater PD, because that's where Scientology's main bases are located, is Clearwater, Florida and Los Angeles, California. Those police uh, law enforcement agencies are completely bought off by Scientology. So between those two things, that's the situation with Scientology and why the government won't step up and step in. Um, okay, Chi Chalker, hey, how's it going? Uh, how were your Thanksgivings while you were in the Sea Org? They sucked. 
<laughs> uh, life in the Sea Org at, at the holiday times was never fun. And um, uh, as far as um, oh, there's Lisa's big uh, big fan. Thank you, thank you very much for that super chat again. Um, Thanksgivings in you know I've made videos about holidays in the Sea Org and stuff. The Sea Org dinner was definitely, Thanksgiving was an all-day affair for the people in the galley. They worked their asses off to give us a, a decent Sea Org meal, and it actually was okay. But it was 40 minutes. That was our dinner. Instead of 30 minutes, it was 40 minutes. And then we're back to work. And that was Thanksgiving for us in the Sea Org. There was no thanks. There was no giving. There was no, you know, uh, good times for all. It was just a 40-minute dinner instead of a 30-minute dinner, and it was a nicer dinner. It was the it was the quality of dinner you would probably expect to get at any decent Denny's or Applebee's or something like that. That was about the quality of the food we got that day. We got pumpkin pie, we got turkey, we got stuffing, and it was it was okay. You know, it was decent. Other than that, it sucked. Um Kyle, how's your wife? Haven't seen her in a while. My wife's great. She's uh, she's working Sundays at this point. She has Fridays and Saturdays off. Her schedule changes in flux, and that's why you haven't seen her around uh, as much. But she, that schedule will be changing, and I look forward to having her probably on my next live Q&A episode. Uh, law of improbability. How does Miscavige justify the periodic changes to the tech in campaigns like Golden Age Tech 2 and the like? How does he justify it? Um, well, pretty much what he says on stage, he tells people that it was not, the materials were put out or published back in the day before L. Ron Hubbard had, uh, um, or sorry, be, you know, with, with bad copywriting or bad proofreading or bad editing or some suppressive got on the line and tried to, you know, take out Hubbard materials or something. I mean, this is kind of how he explains it. Uh, if that's what you mean by how does he justify it, this is how Scientologists buy into it, is they're told that the materials they were studying all these years were not actually 100% on source. They were not exactly what L. Ron Hubbard wrote or said or intended to be published. And he is correcting this through great deals, you know, hours and days and years of investigations and, and, and work to undo all these shenanigans from these SPs and provide Scientology with what L. Ron Hubbard actually intended them to have. That's how, I, that's how David Miscavige gets away with it. Um, yeah. Uh, e Honda Seven Twenty asks uh, is basically inviting me onto his podcast about conspiracy theories and related topics. Would I like to go on to talk about religion? Sure. Yeah. Give, send me an email. Um, let's see, Teresa. Why doesn't Miscavige just have a trusted staff member write OT nine? He can get a lot of kudos for it. You know, I actually talked about this recently, and the reason why OT nine and ten are not released yet is because Miscavige doesn't have to. He can keep stringing people along for years still before he has to produce an OT9 and an OT10. He's got superpower. He's got um, a ton of stuff that is still yet to be released or re-released. I'm sure he's got all his peeps working very, very hard on, probably a lot of sleepless nights going on it, 
the Int base and other places as they're reworking all of the policies of L. Ron Hubbard and all of the technical bulletins of L. Ron Hubbard. Right now, I think that's probably probably the big project they're working on. He doesn't have to stress about OT9 and 10. And come the day that he does, Miscavige will either sit down and write it himself or he will have he will commission somebody else to do it. But he'll probably do it himself and then claim it was found or some other nonsense. Um, I think he still has a few people he has to get rid of first who know that there's no OT9 and 10 first. But we'll see. You know, anything's possible with this stuff. Uh... The Tito Guardian asks, do Scientology celebrities ever see the real day-to-day lives of normal Scientologists or are they completely sheltered from it? No, they're sheltered from it. Scientology celebrities are celebrities, like just like any other celebrities, and they lead sheltered lives. Um, it's just the nature of their business and the way their lives have to go as, uh, as a result of becoming such famous public figures. And Scientology, by the way, has an office at the Celebrity Center called the President's Office, and it's sole function is to make sure that those celebrities are kept under control. So there are people, handlers, who are assigned to Scientology celebrities, and they make sure that they're kept in the dark and stay in the dark about the truth about Scientology. So there is that. Um, Gay frog chart. Wow. Yeah, don't know about that. Uh, When I begin my cult, how much will you charge to consult? (laughs) Um... <laughs> Angela, uh, Silly McChilly, do you think Scientology will lose their tax-exempt status soon, or do you think the IRS is still afraid for the fair gaming of their employees? Um, I don't think it's even that, that the IRS is afraid of fair gaming at this point. I don't think they're even up to being afraid. I think the IRS is just, Scientology is so nowhere in their vicinity, or and there is no political will to move on Scientology, and there, and like I mentioned earlier in this podcast here, uh, and as I've said in the past, in in whole episodes where we've talked about this, they just don't have the people to do it, you know. So, um, so I don't know. I don't think Scientology is going to be losing their tax exempt status anytime soon. Um, oh, I didn't know YouTube took forty percent of the super chats. That sucks. But you know, thanks for the super chats, anyways, guys. Uh, seriously. All right, there are chemicals that change frog sex behavior, where Alex Jones goes crazy as he presents it as being a very widespread phenomenon. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm sure that there are chemicals that could change frog sex behavior. That's not an inconceivable idea. Um, I don't know where, you know, Alex Jones and me don't really mix. (laughs) Kyle, how do Scientologists continue to reason that they can clear the planet, though they haven't cleared anything and that SPs are on the rise? One of the things that is not generally thought about in re- with regard to cults is that the, cu- the currency of cults is hope. You keep giving people, you keep giving the followers reasons to hope, reasons to keep going, reasons that they should continue to invest in what you are giving them or selling them. And the, the cult followers are like Charlie Brown and, Le- and, and Lucy with the football. You know, they keep falling for it. And the point where they break out is when they finally realize, oh, this is not helping me. This is hurting me. This is bad. This is horrible. And they leave, you know. But that's kind of, that. this is a really, it's, it's almost palatable. You can almost feel the hope 
that that has to exist in the heads of Scientologists or cult members in general to keep going, right? And it's and it's a, it's a shame because hope and compassion and, and these kind of things are are good things, and they're taken advantage of by cult leaders. And and uh, so when you say how do Scientologists continue to reason they can clear the planet, is because that's it's a goal, it's a purpose, it's a it's a it's a life drive that they feel very strongly about. And they think that they can pull it off, and it's and it takes a lot to um, to beat that out of somebody. Uh, Teresa, what's the clear cognition? Oh, I explained that earlier. Uh, okay, what would you say is the one thing about Scientology that you've brought with you that has enhanced your life? Angela Perisky asks. At this point, I think the only I, I think that the, the the answer that comes to mind for me is. I think I think the Sea Org trained me or taught me maybe staff but certainly the Sea Org taught me tenacity and a uh, a sort of a you know a bullheadedness or or bulldogishness that I can you know that I can <clears throat> accomplish my goals or I can push forward on something that is difficult or or stressful or or hard and I can make it happen anyway um that that came from that make it go right attitude of the Sea Org where you're you're constantly being fed or given impossible tasks and being tasked with making them possible. And sometimes you do make the impossible possible. And the goals and the reasons why those goals exist kind of suck in the cult world. But you do get this attitude adjustment or skill set or whatever you want to call it of, of raising your necessity to get something done when it has to absolutely positively get done. Um, and I guess I still have that to a degree, and I think that's probably a positive, um, but obviously you can see, you know, I think how that can be turned into a negative really quickly. So, um, that's a, that's an answer. I don't know. Maybe it's a good one. (laughs) What do you think of, um, Canadian professor Stephen Kent's conclusion that LRH was operating from what would be a mental diagnosis of malignant narcissism? And his policies are a peer into that mentality, uh, Carissa Kay asks. Um, I think that there is a legitimacy to that argument, to that point of view. I think a case could be made that L. Ron Hubbard was a malignant narcissist, um, amongst other things. There are many words that can be used to describe L. Ron Hubbard's behavior. I fall back to the temporal lobe epilepsy diagnosis that is a lay diagnosis. It's not a professional one, but it's one that I conjectured about with um, a man named Yuval Leor who came up with this idea. Uh, we did a podcast about it. Again, it's on my, my Sensibly Speaking podcast. Um, it's I think it's called a, a, a New Explanation for L. Ron Hubbard or something like that. We did it a couple years ago. And temporal lobe epilepsy is a physical condition. It's uh, it's actually lesions in the temporal lobe that have a certain specific set of phenomena that accompany it of a religious nature uh, and uh, and extremist ideas and develop from this. And I think it's uh, I think it's the best explanation I still have yet to hear about why L. Ron Hubbard could have been the way that he was. Malignant narcissism is definitely a term that applies to him and his behavior, but I, I like the, um, the TLA, TLE explanation um, as a more root cause of what's actually going on with the man.
without, by the way, letting them off the hook or justifying or rationalizing his behavior. That's not, that's not the point of, of, of that, okay? He was still a horrible guy. <laughs> Tower Vault. Can someone who has prematurely heard of Xenu on the internet still go through the OT levels? Probably not. I've answered that in detail in the past. Uh, they're probably not going to be allowed on the OT levels. Okay. Dr. Beth Satterstein, just religious visas. Oh, boy. Yeah, Mihail Usman asks, I don't know if you've talked about this already, but how does Scientology exploit religious visas for its members from abroad? They Okay, Scientology basically gets foreign people uh, into the United States on religious worker visas, R1 visas, and they lie about how long they'll be in the States. They lie about how long they've been a Scientologist. They lie about their religious status. You know, they lie, lie, lie in order to get the religious visa, in order to get the guy over here so he can be a security guard or work for some, in some fashion for Scientology. And there's been a lot of people who have been brought into Clearwater under that uh, operation, I guess I'll call it. Um, so, yeah. Okay, let's see here. Um, if you were to, these are great questions, by the way. I'm, I'm kind of liking this. I hope you guys are digging the answers. I'm just kind of going boom, boom, boom down these things. Um, not keeping up totally here with where we're at, but I'm just kind of going through them. So let's see. Talking really fast. I hope I'm not talking too fast for you guys too. Uh, so far, no complaints. Okay. Let's see here. Um, going back up the line. Milk Philosopher, if you were to try on the God Helmet and were to have an encounter with some great being, would you believe you had met a real spirit or would you boil it down to an illusory brain state, so to speak? At this point in my life, if I had a supernatural experience, I would do everything I could to question the validity of that experience as a supernatural experience because I'm very, very aware of how many tricks our brains and senses and perceptions can, can fool, how, how many tricks they can pull on us. We are not viewing the world through an objective lens. It is impossible for a human being to do that. We are not actually even perceiving the world the way that it actually is. I mean, it's pretty wild when you start digging into the neuroscience and and uh, and not and and information about how we perceive the world and stuff. It's not how you think it is. So we are easily fooled, easily fooled. The point I'm not I'm not trying to make a point that we're all stupid. I'm not trying to make a point that we're all idiots or that we don't know what's what. You know, obviously we we live our lives, we go through our lives, we see what we see, we experience what we experience, and it's all real enough that we get along, but I'm just making the point that it's not a granular objective reality that you're viewing through your eyes and hearing through your ears. You know, that's the point I'm trying to make. And knowing that myself, I have to be intellectually honest with myself that supernatural experiences are most of the time very easily debunked by looking into how you could have misperceived that event or episode. But most people don't want to look. They don't want to see, right? And I will say that as difficult as it would be, uh, if I felt that I had a supernatural experience of some kind, especially if I was talking to spirits or something, 
I would definitely go way out of my way to try to debunk my own experience before I would ever assert to anybody that I had a supernatural experience. I'll put it that way. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Lisa Kennedy, take how, if at all, did Scientology affect your ability to have a romantic relationship? I love you on your list. So were, were there any effects? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There were all kinds of effects. I had trust issues. I still have trust issues, uh, big, huge ones. Um, for fairly, what, what should I think should be fairly obvious reasons, but let me lay it out for you. I am a Scientology critic, and to this day, I am, you know, I get trolls, and, and I could be fair game by Scientology at any time. And Scientology has hired people and had them infiltrate critics' lives for years. This has gone on. I mean, there was it. Mark Fisher had a, his best friend for years was a Scientologist who was reporting back to the church every day or every week, right? Uh, there were there are all kinds of stories of how Scientology is, has taken advantage of or has uh, fooled critics by infiltrating their lives. Now, I don't think that's happening to me. I trust all my friends. But every single time I get a friend request on, on social media, every single time I meet somebody in real life, I have to think about this. I have to think about whether this person could potentially be connected to the Church of Scientology. And it's not paranoia when you're a Scientology critic. <laughs> you know? I mean, I'm, I'm an outspoken church critic. So I have to keep that in mind all the time. I now take on other cults, too. And these people don't just take, you know, criticism lying down. They're not any different than Scientology. So I have reasons to be cautious and be careful. And, um, and it took a while for me to be able to trust Melissa the way that I do now. Now, I, I, my, my trust for Melissa is as implicit, as, as complete as it possibly, as it possibly could be uh, for anybody. I, I, you know, I couldn't trust anybody more than I trust her. Um, but it took a long time to get there. And I trust my friends, uh, my real-life friends, you know, the ones that I have in real life. But again, I, I have to be cautious and careful about that. So um, so that's how Scientology has affected my relationships, romantic and otherwise. And uh, to this day, that's still a thing. Um, Renee Skinner asked, did you ever audit people when you were in Scientology? Yes, I did. Uh, I, I did a lot of auditing in Scientology. In fact, on the RPF, I audited over a thousand hours of, of auditing on other people, as well as receiving a bunch of auditing myself. Uh, the recovering Hunbot, hey, uh, still recovering from all the time I spent on social media when I was a beach body coach. Yes, hey you. Uh, reach out to me on uh, on uh, email. Let's let's see if we should be doing a podcast about that. Um, Kyle. Felt for them. Cool. Ferdinand, thanks for answering my question. I didn't have heard of Freely. Okay, good. Would you compare your best? Fred Flogiston, <clears throat> would you compare your best experience in auditing with psychotherapy? No, I would not. Um, and I won't do that because psychotherapy has a goal of curing or, or assisting a person. In, and Scientology auditing has that goal too sort of stated, but it's all a con. 
Scientology auditing is not about making you feel better. Or, Mo, it's about making you feel better, but it's not about making you actually better. It's about controlling you. It's about giving you a euphoric experience that you'll go to the salesperson and you will pay more money. And then you'll go have more euphoric experiences. But those euphoric experiences do not mean that you're actually experiencing therapy or catharsis or that something's actually being solved or resolved for you in your life. And Scientology's claims about what its auditing will do are complete hyperbole. You have auditing levels that that say that you will come away with this with abilities like able to be able to uh, freely communicate with anybody on, on any topic, anywhere, at any time. Or you have the ability to spot the sources of problems and make them vanish. Well, I've spotted the source of lots of problems in my life and none of them vanished as a result. <laughs> So I won't compare Scientology auditing with psychotherapy because the purposes of the two activities are completely different. Uh, Even if they look or sound like they are similar or the same, they are not. Uh, Okay, let's see here. Okay, good. Oh, yeah, we're going, uh, still going here. Kyle, will you ever have Steve Hassan on your show? Kyle, I had Steve Hassan on my show a couple weeks ago. <laughs> it's so yeah, I think I will. I've had him on, um, I think two or three times on my podcast, Sensibly Speaking podcast. Check it out. Um, oh, Teresa Aikens asked, Chris, can you give us an example of a time as a Sea Org member that you were given praise for a good job you did? Yes. Sure. Um, there was a time I won a campaign ribbon. Those little ribbons, those bars that, that Sea Org members wear on their uniforms. I got a campaign ribbon one time for working on that uh, Scientologist Online uh, project where we were getting all Scientologists to get websites. This is back in like 2000 or something, back way back in the day. Um, and I got a reward for that. And that was uh, at Sea Org Day where we got a day off and we got food and Got to run around on the beach and, and play and have fun and stuff. And that was uh, that was a reward. Silly McChilly's. Just read Steve Hassan's book. Uh, okay, good. Law of Improbability. Yeah. Uh, Law of Improbability. Yes, you are right. It is an implication of Hubbard's failure that Miscavige is uh, claiming that his writings weren't published according to his intentions. Um, it's, it's, the, 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 the logical fallacy at the bottom of Miscavige's whole justification for golden age of tech and all the changes he's making is that he is basically saying L. Ron Hubbard was an imbecile and he couldn't fact check or, or, or copy check his own work. And he didn't ever check his, his own books or his own lectures or his own works. And that's completely ludicrous that L. Ron Hubbard, uh, didn't do that. So... The, the whole thing is silly. Basically, basically, David Miscavige came up with an explanation that sounds sensible to Scientologists. And that should tell you something about where Scientologists' heads are at, that they think that his explanation is a sensible explanation. And I include myself in that, because when I was in that mindset, I was an idiot that way, you know. Um, I push back on this whole thing about how you know, you have to be an idiot to join a cult because that's not true. You don't have to be an idiot. 
But we should also be clear that cultists do act like idiots. So <laughs> there is that. <laughs> Um, doesn't mean they are idiots, but they can act like them sometimes. Because in the area of the cult, a cult member is stupid. But it's really only in that area. Okay. Uh, let's see here. What would you imagine the world would be like if we had no religion or cults? Tracy asks, what, would the world, what do I imagine the world would be like if we had no religion or cults? Inconceivable. I have a hard time conceiving of this world without a religion and without cults because it's in our very DNA to be tribal and to believe in silly things because we have no explanations for them otherwise. And, you know, not knowing why something is the way that it is has never been a reason why human beings can't invent a reason why things are the way they are. I don't know are not important words for human beings. They, they, they thrive on inventing out of whole cloth explanations for things that they really have no idea what they're talking about. And that's human beings everywhere, all times, all through history, and very definitely including right now. So we would have to have a fundamental change in our, in our very being you know, and, and the way we uh, the way we approach the world for there to not be religion and cults, right? So I think the world would be radically different if these things didn't exist, but I think we would be too. And I think we would have to take a giant leap forward in our evolutionary process before we could get there. So, um, so I think we've got a long time before we're going to see a world without cults and without religion. And it's not my effort by the way, because um, obviously it would be a losing battle anyway. But it's not my effort to rid the world of religion and cults. It's my effort to educate people so they don't fall for that kind of crap in the first place and to, and to get enough agreement between all of us that we don't let them abuse people. You know, destructive cults. That's what I'm trying to fight back against and push back against. And I do think that we could have a world where that doesn't necessarily have to exist, at least not in the volume and, and awfulness that it exists now. And that will take a lot of education and a lot of pushback on stupid ideas and a lot more critical thinking on all of our parts to make that happen. So, that's, so I think the world would be an amazing place if that happened. Uh, okay, let's see here. Let's do a couple more and then we'll wrap up here. Um, this has been really interesting. I have really enjoyed some of these questions. I hope you guys have, I hope my answers have been, been cool. Um, song that most stuck in the head while working on staff or in the Sea Org, Kiva Go asks. Oh, geez, I don't know, hundreds of them. I, I, you know, over the years, I, I had so many times where I was just living in my head while I was operating, you know, on, on the RPF especially. Um, very introverting experience. Um, but so many different songs, including songs I made up myself. I, when I was on the RPF, I actually wrote like 70 songs. I just had this impulse all of a sudden to start writing songs. They suck, by the way, and they're never going to see the light of day, and I'm never going to show them to you, so don't even ask. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's how, that's where my head went, uh, in certain times when I was in the Sea Org. 
Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, I'm glad that you liked the podcast about the teal swan. How's the weather in Colorado today? Um, Chalker asks. Clear blue skies and sunny. And the snow is still melting off that we had from the last few days. It's been pretty cold, though. Um, all right, let's do one more. Just kind of scoping through here. So many questions I've already answered so many times. Um, Kath T. asks, If people stay in cults because of false hope, what do you think is the hope that Trump offers people that keeps people following him. That their lives are going to be better as a direct result of his policies and, and uh, what he's going to implement at a government level. That's the false hope that we all put in all of our politicians, by the way. <laughs> we are silly, optimistic, hopeful people. Uh, that is how that is. Okay, uh, show that. All right, guys, let's go ahead and wrap up here. Um, <laughs> can we see the songs? No, you cannot. That is never going to happen. Um, okay, what was the most enjoyable poster job that you did? The single best time I ever had in the Sea Org was the three weeks that I spent in San Diego, I think in 2003, getting the 20 auditors recruited and posted there. And the reason why I had the most fun there is because it was the one, it was the longest period of time where I experienced a Scientology environment that was fun and creative and there was pressure and there was push, no doubt about it, generating from me too as the guy who was in charge. But it was, it was kept fun, it was kept light. There was not a lot of yelling or screaming or anything like that. I worked with these people, not at them or on them. Uh, and we came together as a team and we did something that all of us thought was totally impossible. And we did it in a very compressed period of time. And the, there was an esprit de corps that we generated there that was just undeniable. And it was a lot of fun. And it was the absolutely highest point of my entire Scientology Sea Org career. It was great, and uh, and which is why when I went back to L.A. and basically got the kibosh and got told that what I had done was not that big of a deal, was not that important, and that what we had done was not going to be propagated around the rest of the orgs, it was then that I realized, really, really saw behind the curtain for the first time, like really saw that this organization was not about having fun or doing what it said it was doing. It was about something else entirely. And I didn't know what it was about yet. I just knew it was not about having fun or, or, or growing these organizations and making them expand and actually doing Scientology as a fun, interesting, exciting activity. Whatever we were doing in the Sea Org, that wasn't what we were doing. That became really clear to me after that project. So uh, it was the high and then followed, of course, immediately by the low. Um, okay, let's just see if we have anything more here. Um, yeah, okay, let's wrap it up, guys. Thanks for coming around and watching. This has been a lot of fun. I have really enjoyed it this week. I think this has been the most chill I've been during one of these things, too. I just kind of... 
<sighs> okay, let's do it, right? I think it's getting a little easier here. So this is kind of fun. All right, guys, we will do this again in a few weeks, I think, uh, maybe a month or two. And, um, and you might see some more live streams from me in between now and then on some other topics. I certainly hope so, because I think that these are just a bunch of fun to have. Thank you very much for the super chats, guys, and the support you guys are, are putting on my channel. I really, really appreciate it. I hope you will uh, continue to check out all my content out there. And if you have not read my book, please do purchase it and read it, because I think you'll find it very, very interesting. Okay, see you guys later. Bye-bye.